0: Okay, so welcome to the third lecture in contract law. And before we get into the main topic for this particular lecture, let's just briefly get our bearings. I mentioned in the previous lecture that we are going to be dealing with the what I'm calling the basic rule of contract law for the next few weeks. And that rule has to do with the formation of contracts, what conditions need to be satisfied in order for a legally binding contract to be formed. And as I mentioned, there are five conditions. There must be an offer, the offer must be accepted, there must be consideration, there must be intention to create legal relations, and if appropriate, there must be compliance with any necessary formalities, usually a contract in writing. And if those five conditions are met, then there is a legally binding contract. It comes into existence. And as I said, the first two conditions describe what the law understands as an agreement between two parties. And I want to talk about the first condition today and the rule in relation to offers in contract. So the offer rule, broadly stated, is that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be an offer. And an offer is a clear statement by one party, the offeror, to another party, the offeree, showing a willingness to be legally bound by specific contractual terms as soon as those terms are accepted by the offeree. So if you go into a shop and you pick up an item off the shelf, a bottle of water, a bar of chocolate, something like that, and you bring it to the counter, in law you are making an offer. You are offering to purchase that item at the price that is stated on the item or on the shelf. You're demonstrating your willingness to be bound by specific contractual terms. Now that might sound straightforward enough, But as you'll soon learn in law and in contract law in particular, nothing is quite that straightforward. There are several qualifications to that basic rule. There are several ways in which there can fail to be an offer. And there are also things just to bear in mind about the complexities of offers in contract law. And there are five of them in particular that I want to talk about. And I'll split these over two lectures, and I'll talk about three of them today. Okay, So these are the three main topics for today, is that in law you have to distinguish an offer from a request for or supply of information. You have to distinguish an offer from an invitation to treat or an advertisement or advert. And then the third thing is that even though you do have to distinguish an offer from an invitation to treat or an advert, there are some kinds of advert that count as unilateral offers. Okay, so we're going to talk about those three things in more detail. And in order to do so, we're going to have to go through a lot of case law And indeed, the main focus for this particular lecture is going to be describing and explaining the results of certain classic cases in contract law. So let's start into the first of those topics, the notion that an offer has to be distinguished from a request for or a supply of information. And you can understand this very simply by just imagining yourself being involved in some kind of contractual negotiation. So let's say you know that a friend down the road is willing to sell her bicycle to you, they've expressed some kind of willingness to sell their bicycle in the past, and you inquire of them, how much would you be willing to sell the bicycle for, and they get back to you and they tell you, I would be willing to sell the bicycle for 100 euros. That response to your inquiry as to how much they're willing to sell it for is just a supply of information, and it doesn't count in law as an offer. At least not unless it comes with much more specific wording that clearly demonstrate an intention on their part to be bound by specific terms and conditions. If they're just telling you what the price is, that is not an offer. And there are many cases that illustrate this idea, that a request for information is distinct from an offer. And the case that's most commonly cited as the authority for this proposition is a case called Harvey v. Facey. It's an 1893 appeals court decision from the UK. So the facts of the case are as follows. Facey is selling a property in Kingston, Jamaica called Bumper Hall. Harvey is interested in purchasing this property and sends Facey a telegram with the following wording on it. Will you sell us Bumper Hall, telegraph your lowest cash price, answer paid. Now note the wording here, that last little bit, answer paid, suggests that Harvey, at least, were willing to purchase the property at whatever price Facey stated. Facey replied to this telegram and said lowest price 900 pounds. Harvey then replied we agreed to buy for the sum of 900 pounds. Now Facey at this point tried to back out of the deal and said well no no I that wasn't an offer I was just telling you how much the lowest price would be what I'd be willing to sell it for. You then have to respond to me with your offer to purchase. Your response to my telegram is not an acceptance of my offer and an illegally binding contract doesn't come into existence just because you responded saying that you agreed to buy. And the court agreed with Facy. The telegram was not a valid legal offer. It was just a supply of information or a statement of the price that they would be willing to sell at. It's up to Harvey then to make the formal offer enroll. So hopefully that's straightforward enough. That's broadly analogous to the scenario I sketched with you purchasing the bicycle from your friend. The thing is, however, that contractual negotiations are often complex, and so the transition from a supply of information to an offer can sometimes be subtle or uncertain. So, you know, in law we try to invent these categories or concepts that divide the world up into neat little boxes, but the real world sometimes isn't so neat. It's more complex than those boxes. And there's a pair of cases involving essentially the same set of facts that illustrate this complexity, and they're both English cases from the latter half of the 20th century. So it's the case of Gibson versus Manchester City Council and Storer versus Manchester City Council. So, as I say, both of these cases arose from essentially the same set of facts. So, what happened is that when the Conservative government were in power in the 1960s. The Manchester City Council, they had a policy of allowing tenants in council houses to purchase their properties. And so they sent out a bunch of brochures to the tenants of council properties with a detachable form that allowed the tenant to seek information on the price that the council would be willing to sell the house to them at. So in the case of Gibson, Gibson received one of these brochures, he completed the form, and he sent it back to the council. So again, this form is just a request for the price. He received a letter, and the letter stated the following. The letter stated that the corporation may be prepared to sell the house to you at the purchase price of £2,725, less 20%. This letter should not be regarded as a firm offer of a mortgage. If you would like to make a formal application to buy your council house, please complete the enclosed application form and return it as soon as possible. I mean, now, The wording of that letter seems fairly clear and unambiguous. It's stating that it's not a firm offer. If you want to purchase the house, you have to make a formal application. Now, the complexity in this case arose from the fact that there was a change of government or of local government. So the Labour Party took over the Manchester City Council, and they reneged on the Conservative policy of selling houses. And so a number of tenants who were in the process of purchasing their house from the council got caught out by this change. So what had happened to Gibson is he had got this letter from the council, he had completed the form that was attached to the letter, he had returned it to the council, but he had left the price section blank. He hadn't filled in the exact price. And his stated reason for this is that he was looking for further clarification as to whether the council would repair certain public paths that were in the vicinity of the house. Now, the council responded again, saying that they would not repair these paths. Gibson responded saying, okay, I would have preferred it if you did, but I'd be obliged if you would carry on with the purchase as per my application, which is already in your possession, with the price section blank. Now, before the council replied, there was an election, and the Labour Party took over, and they reneged on the policy. So in this case, think about the documents that have gone back and forth. First is the brochure saying that if you want to know the price, fill in this application form, send it back to us, and we'll tell you the price. There's a letter stating the price, but the letter clearly states that it's not a formal offer. Gibson responds to this letter with an, filling out an application form that's appended to the letter. And that application form arguably does count as an, as an acceptance in law. It would seem to potentially count, sorry, would count as an offer in law. It would seem on the face of it to count. But he didn't fill out the price section because he was looking for further information. So the council responded with this further information about the repair of the paths. And he said, okay, please continue. even though you're not going to repair the paths, please proceed with the purchase according to the terms within the application form already in your possession. But the application form in their possession doesn't actually contain the price. So the House of Lords in the UK, look at this, the chief court in the land at the time, and they decided that there isn't any firm offer in any of these documents. So the council had never committed to the sale, they'd only stated a willingness to negotiate for a sale. And this invitation to apply to purchase your house at a certain price was not the same thing as an offer. Now that case, again, illustrates some of the complexity in the kinds of documents that get exchanged between parties and figuring out, well, is this just a request for information or is it an offer? And there's actually another case arising from the same set of facts, as I mentioned, the Storer case, which actually predates the Gibson case, which suggests that in some scenarios, the court is willing to lean in the other direction and say that actually, no, we have crossed the threshold into a formal offer scenario. It's not just a request for or supply of information. So the facts of the Storer case, as I say, basically the same, with some subtle differences. Okay, So the tenant is trying to buy the house from the council, the council changed to over to Labour before the sale was completed, but in this particular case, the following letter was sent by the Conservative Council prior to the election to the plaintiff. and The letter contained the following statement, I understand that you wish to purchase your council house and I enclose the agreement for sale. If you will sign the agreement and return it to me, I will send you the agreement signed on behalf of the council in exchange. Right, so this wording is a little bit different. It's not stating that this isn't a formal offer. It seems to be suggesting that if you complete this agreement for sale, we are willing to be bound upon it. Okay, So the plaintiff signs this agreement letter, and this agreement letter states an agreed purchase price, a mortgage, and monthly repayments. The letter didn't contain some details. It didn't specify when the tenancy was to end and the mortgage was to begin and the council never got a chance to respond to the letter and sign it in response, due to the change in political control, nevertheless, the court in this case found that there was an offer. The negotiations had crossed the threshold, and so the contract, in essence, could be completed. So as I say, these two cases illustrate some of the complexity that we encounter in the real world. We like, in law, to divide the world up into these neat conceptual categories and boxes, distinguishing an offer from a supply of information, But in the real world, the kinds of documents, the kinds of communications that are made between parties to a contract sometimes don't really fit neatly into those boxes. And there's a judgment call to be made about when we cross the threshold from pre-contractual negotiations to a formal offer for purchase or for sale, as the case may be. Okay, so that's the first point about offers, that you have to distinguish an offer from a request for or supply of information. The second point I want to make now about offers is that you have to distinguish between an offer and what's known in law as an invitation to treat or an advert really. Because so An invitation to treat is essentially a representation or a statement by one party that of a willingness to start negotiating a potential contract but not a statement of a willingness to be bound by specific terms and conditions. So There are many famous cases that illustrate this distinction. I'm just going to run through a bunch of them. Most of these cases come from England and a couple of other jurisdictions, but there's a couple of them as well from Ireland. So the first case I want to mention is Fisher v. Bell. So in this case, you have goods displayed in a shop window. Specifically, you have a bunch of flick knives displayed in a shop window. And there's a little sign next to these knives stating flick knife, four shillings. It's kind of a statement of the price. There's a problem in this case because there's a an act of parliament in the UK from 1959 that states that it is illegal to offer for sale any knife which has a blade which opens automatically by hand pressure applied to a button. In other words, it is illegal to offer for sale a flick knife. So the question here becomes whether the display of the knife in the window with the sign about price associated with it is an offer for sale and so not compliant with this Act of Parliament. And the court decided in this case that it is not an offer for sale. The display of the goods in the window is just an invitation to treat, and so it doesn't fall foul of this Act. There's a subsequent case, Partridge v Crittenden, the 1968 case, which has similar facts, except in this case you have an advert in a local newspaper, and the advert states that Quality British bramble finches for sale 25 shillings each. There's a problem here because there's an act, again, of Parliament, the Protection of Birds Act, which states that it's illegal to offer for sale certain types of bird, including bramble finches. So the question before the court is whether the advert in the local newspaper is an offer for sale. And the court decide, no, it's not. It's just a mere invitation to treat. There's a third case on a similar set of facts or similar scenario. It's actually an older case. So you'll see I'm not really respecting chronological sequences. I'm going through some of these cases. I'm really highlighting them because I think they highlight important points. And this particular case is more complex than the two preceding ones, even though it involves a similar scenario. And it's the case of the Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain versus Boots Cash Chemists. So you're all probably actually familiar with Boots. They're still in existence to this day. And they actually had quite a pioneering approach to the way in which they structured a pharmacy. So what Boots did, and this is from the 1950s or 40s actually, originally the case, they used to stack medicines on shop shelves. People could come into the shop, they could pick up the items off the shelf and bring them to the counter for purchase. These were like non-prescription-based medicines. There was a problem, however, for Boots, in that there was an act, the Pharmacy and Poisons Act of 1933, which stated that a pharmacist, a registered pharmacist, had to supervise the sale of certain kinds of medication. And so the issue for Boots, because of the way they structured their shops, that you had the medicines on the shelves and you could just pick them up and bring them to the counter for purchase, the issue for them was whether the placement of the goods on the shelf constituted an offer. And if they did constitute an offer, then a sale would be affected whenever the items were taken off the shelf. So when you take the items off the shelf, you're accepting that offer, and so sale is completed, but there's no pharmacist supervising you at that moment when you pick the medication off the shelf. And so that seems to be contrary to the provision within the Pharmacies and Poisons Act. Now, the, the conclusion in this case is the court decides that the placement of the goods on the shelves did not amount to an offer, and Lord Justice Burkett in the case, says that, in my opinion, the mere fact that a customer picks up a bottle of medicine from the shelves does not amount to an acceptance of an offer to sell. It is rather an offer by the customer to buy. So this is actually a very important case, legally and practically, because it establishes unequivocally that putting items on a shelf in a shop does not constitute an offer to sell, and picking up those items does not constitute the acceptance of an offer to sell. Rather, picking up the items and bringing them to the counter constitutes the offer, and then it's up to the vendor, the person who owns the shop, to accept that offer. And you might think that's obvious. Of course, that's the way it works. But it wasn't always obvious because shops were not always structured in that way where you could just go in and pick items off shelves. If you look at a lot of old-style country shops, for example, you still see pictures of them or you can find pictures of them online. What would typically happen is that a customer would come into the shop there would be the shop owner behind a counter and all the items for sale would be displayed behind the shop owner and then the customer would ask the shop owner to retrieve certain items that they wished to purchase. So this idea of like, going into a shop and having aisles set up where you pick the items off them was an invention. It wasn't something that always existed and so until it came into existence it wasn't clear whether picking the items off the shelf would constitute the acceptance of an offer to sale. So it was important that that was clarified and that's why the pharmaceutical society of great britain versus boots cash chemist case is actually practically and legally important and it's also important from our perspective here because it distinguishes between what's an invitation to treat and what's an offer so those are three english cases there's also some irish case law on this and the irish case that's typically cited is the minister for industry and commerce versus pims brothers and it's actually again a very similar set of facts So here you have a coat displayed in a shop window with a price, and the price states that certain credit terms are available, so you can purchase this coat on credit. And There's a problem here because there's a a Higher Purchase Act of 1946 that makes it an offence to offer an item for sale on credit without specifically stating what the terms of credit are. And the problem in the way in which the coat is displayed in the shop window with the price is that it doesn't state what the specific credit terms are. But the court follows the British authorities here in this case and decides that merely displaying the coat or in, in the shop window with the price is not an offer for sale, it is an invitation to treat. So the Minister for Industry and Commerce versus PIMS is the main Irish authority following this kind of British line of thinking. Okay, so the, that's the second issue I wanted to, dis- to discuss, the distinction between an offer and an invitation to treat or an advert. The third thing I want to discuss is actually a complication on this. That even though it is ordinarily the case that an advert that states the price at which certain goods are going to be sold and so forth constitutes an invitation to treat and not an offer, there are some scenarios in which the wording or structure of an ad can be such as to constitute what law calls a unilateral offer. So you might wonder what that term means. It just means that it's an offer made to no one in particular. So one party is stating very clearly that it's willing to be bound on certain terms and conditions, but it doesn't state who the customer is or who the other side of the contract is. Anyone who satisfies those terms and conditions amounts in law to the person who accepts the offer. And what is arguably the most famous case in contract law, and the one that most people who take a contract law course remember years later when they've forgotten everything else in contract law, illustrates this idea. And that's the case of Carlisle versus Carbolic Spokepole. So I think this is actually an important case for a number of reasons. One of the main reasons is actually if you read the judgment in the case, it gives you a very good illustration of the kinds of reasoning that judges engage in when they're trying to figure out or specify what the law should be on a particular issue. And so we're actually going to go through the reasoning in this case in a lot of detail in one of our on-campus lectures, if those lectures take place. So I'm going to hold off on some of the exact detail of the case for the time being. What I'll do right now is I'll just give you a general sketch of it and show you how the case decides this notion that some kinds of advert constitute a unilateral offer. So let's first talk about the facts of the case. So these are somewhat amusing, and this is probably one of the reasons why people remember it so well. So the carbolic smoke ball is a kind of medical device You can see a rather crude picture of it in the advert that's associated with this case, which I've posted on Blackboard. So It's a a little ball with a kind of straw-like tube sticking out of it, and you suck on this tube, and you inhale some kind of vaporous matter. And the company that makes the carbolic smoke ball claim that this cures a number of conditions, things like bronchitis, catarrh, influenza, and so forth. And they're so confident in their product that they, they pay for an ad in a popular London magazine, the Pall Mall Gazette, which states that if you happen to catch influenza while taking the carbolic smoke bowl on a regular basis following the instructions on the product, we will give you a £100 reward. It's quite a lot of money in the d- back in the day. This case is decided back in the late 1800s. And the ad itself is actually a classic illustration of a genre of ad that was common at the time, where you had people offering these miracle cures for all sorts of common ailments. And they used to have quite overblown claims on behalf of these miracle cures, but often dressed up with lots of testimonials by people who've taken it successfully. And it all seems very persuasive and exciting. And if you did worry about suffering from one of these illnesses, you might be persuaded to take one of these medications. So as I say, I've actually posted the ad on Blackboard, and it's really worth taking a bit of time to look at the ad, look at the wording within the ad, and ask yourself whether you would think, with this ad, that the company is making an offer to be bound on specific terms. That if somebody contracts influenza while taking the product accurately, following the instructions, are the company essentially bound to pay them this £100 reward? Because that's, in essence, the issue in the case. So what actually happens in the case is that Mrs. Carlisle, an elderly Scottish lady, sees the advert, she buys the product, she uses it as per the instructions, and despite her best efforts, she still contracts influenza, and so she tries to claim the reward. When she does so, the company refuses to pay it, on the grounds that this ad was not an offer, and so there's no legally binding contract requiring them to pay the money. Now, Mrs. Carlyle's lawyers dispute this, and they state that the wording of the ad and the construction of the ad is such that it does illustrate a willingness on the part of the company to be bound by specific terms. So as I say, I'll go into the reasoning in this case in more detail, but in essence, what the company argues is that they couldn't possibly be bound by the statement within the ad, because the ad was what's known in the business as mere advertising puffery. So it's just kind of fanciful, hyperbolic language designed to sell a product, but it's not intended to be the terms and conditions of a legally binding agreement. And they also then make the claim that you know this is a an ad issued to everybody in the world, not to any specific party, so how can they possibly be bound into an agreement with Mrs. Carlisle since they never made this offer to her specifically? And what's interesting in this judgment is that the court disagrees with them and they decide that actually this ad did constitute a legally binding unilateral offer. And one of the things that the leading judgment focuses on by Lord Justice Bowen is the wording within the ad. I just want to quote again a passage from the judgment where he outlines his reasoning as to why he thinks that this ad must be an actual unilateral offer and not simply mere advertising puffery. So what he says is that, Was it intended that the £100 should be paid if the conditions were fulfilled? The advertisement says that £1,000 is actually lodged at a bank for this purpose. Therefore, it cannot be said that the statement was intended to be a mere puff. I think it was intended to be understood by the public as an offer which was to be acted upon. So this is one of the details of the case, which you'll see if you look at the wording of the ad, is that They state that there's a £100 reward, and almost as a gesture of good faith, they say that, well, we've actually deposited £1,000 at a bank to pay out people as a reward if they happen to contract influenza. Now, they probably thought when they did that, that this was, again, just kind of to add to the hyperbolic nature of the ad to suggest that they are really confident in their product. But Lord Justice Bowen holds it against them and says, because of this wording within the ad... It suggests that you are actually willing to be bound by specific terms and conditions, and so you have made a unilateral offer to the whole world, and the fact that Mrs. Carlyle contracted influenza by following the instructions on your product means that she is entitled to the the payment of the reward. She has accepted your unilateral offer. So a very interesting and important case, and as I say, we'll go into some of the reasoning within that case in more detail because it actually illustrates other important concepts when it comes to the formation of a contract. As I said, that's an interesting case in its own right, but there are other cases which support the reasoning within it, and it has become a very persuasive and widely cited legal authority. So let me just mention a couple of other cases that illustrate this idea. First is the case of Bowerman versus the Association of British Travel Agents. Again, this is a UK decision from the mid-90s. And what happens there is that the plaintiffs book a holiday with a travel agency that's a member of this Association of British Travel Agents, This travel agency becomes insolvent, but they were covered by a policy of the Association of British Travel Agents that stated that where holidays have not yet commenced, the association arranges for you to be reimbursed. Now, the Association of British Travel Agents tried to argue that this was not a valid legal offer, this statement of the policy, but the Court of Appeal held that the situation is actually virtually identical to that of Carlisle versus Carbolic Smoke Bowl an ordinary member of the public would read that statement as constituting a unilateral offer. Another case that illustrates this idea is Lefkowitz versus Greater Minneapolis Surplus Stores. So this is a US decision, and it actually has interesting facts within it, which I often bring up in problem questions in exams. So worth paying attention to this bit. So the facts of Lefkowitz are that there were two ads in a local paper on different weekends. The first ad stated that Saturday, 9 a.m. sharp, three brand-new fur coats, worth up to $100, first-come, first-served, $1 each. And then there was a second advert one week later. Saturday, 9 a.m. sharp, mink scarfs and lapin stoles, selling for $89.50 to $139.50, out they go, first-come, first-served. So obviously the wording is kind of brief and staccato-esque, but it suggests that if you show up at the shop, at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning, you're going to get these goods at a certain price. So Lefkowitz saw both ads and responded to them by showing up in the store and was the first person to show up in the store each Saturday. But on both occasions, the store refused to sell the items to him on the grounds that it was a house rule that only women could claim these goods. So Lefkowitz brought a case, and the court held that he had a good case, that it, the ads were a valid legal offer and the ads contained no mention of this house rule that only women could claim. And so Lefkowitz could, by showing up in the shop on the Saturday morning, accept the offer made in the ads. Now, there's one kind of complication to this, however, which is that the court said that Lefkowitz could only claim for the value of the scarfs and the stoles because the value of the fur coats in the first ad was entirely speculative. There's also relevant Irish case law on this idea. So I'll mention two cases here. The first case is Wilson versus Belfast Corporation from 1921. Now the facts here date back to September 1914, which is the start of the First World War. The Belfast City Council passed a resolution stating that all employees of the Belfast Corporation who joined the armed forces would be paid half wages for the duration of the war. This resolution was then published in the press, so it was made known to employees of the Belfast Corporation. There was then a second resolution when they realized that this might put them on the line for quite a lot of money, limiting this offer to those who were employed before the 5th of August 1914. So just to be clear here, what the what the corporation are doing is that they are providing an incentive to their employees to join the armed forces to help out with the war effort. But then they are going back on this slightly by saying that you have to actually be in the employ of the Belfast Corporation before the 5th of August 1914. You can't join the corporation and then avail of this offer. Now the plaintiff joined after the second resolution and died in combat, and his widow then claimed for the amount of money that she felt was owing to him from the date of his enlistment to the date of his death. And the court held that the ad in this case was not a valid legal offer, the resolution was not intended as an offer, and they could not be bound just because it was published, because it ended up being published without their consent. So this, again, this case actually illustrates some of the complexities around deciding what constitutes a unilateral offer. But that case should be contrasted with a later case called Billings v. Arnott, where the court does find, in a similar set of facts, that there is, in fact, a binding unilateral offer. So Billings v. Arnett's involves a case where the Arnott's management in Dublin, they posted a notice that offered employees who joined the Irish Defence Forces one half of their salaries up to the sum of £2 per week at the start of World War II. So a different war. The plaintiff informed the defendants of his intention to avail of this offer. So Billings is an employee of Arnott's, and he says, I'm going to avail of this offer. But then he was told that he could not do so as another employee from his department had already joined, and he could not be spared. He nevertheless went off and joined the Irish Defence Forces, and he was then told by a director of Arnott's that the offer was withdrawn insofar as he was concerned. But he managed to successfully sue them for three and a half years of back pay. And the reasoning was that the court felt that the notice showed a clear intention by the company to be bound by certain terms and conditions if someone joined the defense forces, and there were no statements within the notice allowing them to revoke or limit the scope of the offer. So, like Carbolic Smoke Bowl, Arnets were bound by what they had stated in their notice. Okay, so I think that's enough for this particular lecture. As mentioned, we're introducing this notion of what an offer is in law, and one of the main ways in which we do this is by telling you what an offer isn't. And I've introduced three kind of qualifications to that rule about what counts as an offer. First, that an offer is not the same thing as a request for or supply of information. It's also not the same thing as an invitation to treat or an advert. Nevertheless, it is possible for some adverts to count as unilateral offers, provided that the wording within them demonstrates a clear intention to be bound by certain conditions.